0: Astrid and Jamila would like to acknowledge that this podcast was made on the lands of the Wurundjeri and the Boon Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging and we note that this sovereignty was never ceded. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to Anonymous Was a Woman. My name is Tamila Risby, and I'm joined by my co-host Astrid Edwards. And today we are speaking to award-winning author Sarah Krasnerstein. You will recognise Sarah's name and that is because she wrote the best-selling both here in Australia and globally, The Trauma Cleaner, about four years ago, which is an extraordinary which we highly recommend. We're delighted to be in conversation with Sarah today about her new work which is called The Believer. To quote Sarah's description, this book is about ghosts and gods and flying saucers, certainty in the absence of knowledge, how the stories we tell ourselves to deal with the distance between the world as it is and as we'd like it to be, can stunt us or save us. That is a very big description. Sarah has spent four years, I think, both here in Australia and in the States talking to people who have some quite unusual beliefs. She speaks to a person who believes in ghosts, one who believes in UFOs, one who believes in the literal creation of the universe in six days, but also people who have beliefs that are more unusual but I think really engaging and interesting to a lot of people like a death doula who believes in dying with autonomy not in a hospital surrounded by machines she speaks to someone who has spent half their life in prison because they protected their child and yet they still believe in a higher power it is a wonderful conversation that is full of possibility I hope you enjoy it Sarah, welcome to Anonymous Was A Woman. The Believer is being touted as one of the most anticipated books of the year. How does that anticipation slash pressure sit with you?
1: Yeah, it's very surreal. Obviously, you don't want to complain about that because it's a wonderful position to be in as a writer, but it's also potentially quite paralyzing if you think about that too much. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm quite grateful for it, but I also just try to kind of stick my head back down and kind of work on the next thing, have that in play, which is always a life raft. Anyway, while the world decides whether it's going to be something that they like, and I don't have control over that anymore. And so, yeah, just waiting and seeing. It's kind of a becalmed period. You're a bit paralyzed.
2: I like the idea of you alluding to what you're working on next, but before we come back to that... (laughs) How would you classify your particular nonfiction writing style? So your first work was The Trauma Cleaner, and now we have The Believer. And they both strike me as intense, personal, incredibly well-researched. How do you go about telling real stories?
1: So one of the weird things about publishing is that you think of your book only as your book, and then it's a commodity, and then it has to be shelved somewhere, and then you're told it sits in this shelf and it sits, you know, in this category. And you're like, I, don't, I didn't think about that when I was writing it. It was just, you know, I think of everything that I write as an essay, which obviously, you know, marketing is a different thing. It has to sit in an algorithm for a reason. But if you think of an essay as like an exploration of what you think, trying to follow an idea to where it leads you, then I don't think that's just limited to what we traditionally think of as shorter essay pieces. I think that that can apply to certain forms of long form nonfiction and book length nonfiction, narrative nonfiction. So I don't set out to, for it to look in a particular way. I don't consider that anything I do is kind of, you know, true crime or biography or memoir. I don't think of that as at all. I kind of just explore the idea as it unfolds which is very uncomfortable for me because I am not that personality I really prefer to do all the work and do all the research and then write it all up and that is not at all what the process is.
0: (laughs) I in a similar vein have a question about whether there's a sense of continuum here from the trauma cleaner obviously that was an enormous Australian and international success and They're very different books, but at the same time, there feels like there's a theme of, this sounds a bit cliche, but extraordinary, ordinary people.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's kind of like what I, most of my reading is about. I like those stories where something seems quite familiar to begin with and then suddenly goes somewhere completely unexpected or something that seems a bit weird to begin with turns out to be much more familiar than expected. And in the things that I I read, it's always really that kind of story. And I guess that's where my eyes go in terms of finding a story. I mean, the fear, particularly when you have the very successful first book, and I don't know what it's like for fiction writers. I, I assume it's the same thing, but is that, you know, you got lucky, you found something and it'll never come again. And what you need to know as a writer is what you already knew as a reader which is that there are more stories than there are people and it's a way of looking at the world so once you kind of turn on your story eyes you're going to be attracted to certain things i mean like i write in the first couple of pages of the believer like finding meetings can be accidental like i'll come across certain things in the world but looking again the curiosity to kind of ask what else is there what that's about That's something that I think is quite personal and might be related to our voices as writers.
2: So this week, we are very loosely, of course, talking about the idea of possibility and what could be. And your latest work, The Believer, goes into what people believe, what they hang their hat on, everything from religious beliefs to beliefs in the supernatural. How do you approach what other people so fervently believe? How do you handle that delicately, even if you really don't believe it?
1: So I guess the people in this book, so there's six different stories and I try to like, raid them together to form a seventh story, which is like you say, about belief and kind of this human tendency. And while all of those people kind of believe things that can be put on a spectrum of rationality to things that like most of the rest of us would be quite familiar with to things that most of the rest of us would think is kind of wacky, there's no one there who is in there to make fun of. I think it takes four, so far, both of my books have taken four years of research and writing, and it's a lot of time to devote to an enterprise that you're undertaking cynically. And I mean, there's... There are writers, TV makers that do that, and there's a big audience for that. But I'm really not so interested in making fun of anyone. I'm more interested in kind of looking for what is recognizable in something that at first appears very strange. So, you know, I wasn't tempted to kind of just go at that surface level of, like, mocking anybody. I mean, there are things in there that are funny, and that might hit you as absurd. But I always try to kind of dig beneath the surface to look for, well, How do the rest of us do that? What's there that we can all relate to? Because I think that's the more interesting question at the end of the day, and maybe really the only question. The
0: book, it's builders exploring what we believe, who we believe, and why we believe them. Some of the people you talk to, as you mentioned, believe some pretty out there things, alien abduction, poltergeists, and the rest. But I suppose I want to ask, more generally... Are we all living in a world where what each of us believes is becoming more disparate than it used to be? I'm kind of, you know, throwing back 100, 200, 300 years where a society would generally have a religious belief that was in common, whereas it feels to me that the internet in particular is leading us to a place where what we believe can be very, very different to the person who lives next door to us.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting question and I was kind of coming back to that a lot because it was like, do we live in a world of, on the one hand, increasing fragmentation and the isolation and kind of rootlessness that leads to, or is it kind of the opposite problem of we are now being like inextricably siloed and only kind of living in our own beliefs with no exposure to other experiences? And I don't know what the answer to that question is, except that I think that we've seen in the last year that intellect alone doesn't move the world. We have clear evidence of that on climate change and much more close to home in the immediacy of the pandemic and rise of autocratic governments. And there's kind of no unifying, there's no kind of social agreement about even the process by which we're going to agree on the facts to make up our minds on certain things. So in that sense, when I was going to look at the creationist scientists, and they think that the world is 6,000 years old, because that's what uh, the Bible tells them, someone said to me at the time, oh, it's quite medieval. And I said, well, you know, I think there's elements of the medieval which are very modern. So maybe, you know, it's not that things are worse or they're getting worse. Maybe we've always done this in different ways. Maybe we're still at the beginning of what it would look like to actually listen to each other. And maybe that has something to do with why we cling to these beliefs in the absence of certainty in the first place.
2: Can you talk to us a little bit about the process of belief, how an individual, you know, how their psychology, how their brain, how their emotions all invest in something? And we all do it. We all do it on big things like how do we approach religion or do we believe in climate change? And then we do it on lots of little things, like our own little quirks and behaviours and silent mantras we say to ourselves, whatever, right? What is that process and why do we do it as humans?
1: So I always kind of look at the story first and then I go to the secondary research. And I didn't want this to be too much of a kind of uh, intellectualised inquiry into the nature of belief. But when I got into that material, which you know I'm very interested in, There was a lot there that was like discomfortingly familiar. So we can talk about these people that, you know, believe, you know, there's one guy that he's a uranium specialist and he'll tell you that, you know, Noah's flood happened 4,000 years ago. And UFO researchers, ghost researchers it's a process which you can apply it to those things so you can apply it to things that are much closer to home and we have these confirmation biases where we will forget about things that disprove what we would like to think and know is going to happen our certainties and we kind of privilege evidence that supports our pre-existing views and we are wired to favor certainty over accuracy And I'm sure that supports, you know, evolutionary function of keeping us safe because, you know, there are times when you don't want to get certain things wrong. But I think, you know, spiritually, if you want to talk about the way we're connected to each other and ourselves and the earth, that that forms a way of kind of dealing with the world as it is, which is a lot of uncertainty, a lot of injustice, uh, you know, illness, death. How can we come to terms with that and also hold in our mind what we would like for ourselves and our children? It's an impossible task. So I think cognitively we've developed these kind of, these ticks, which might not serve us in the long run, but definitely make us feel better when we're dealing with difficult parts of being human.
0: There was so much of me that couldn't help but think about American politics while reading your book, Sarah. Sometimes explicitly, but a lot of the times implicitly and you know we are speaking in the weeks following the inauguration of President Biden and we know that the last US election campaign and certainly politics in the US but I think more broadly around the world have increasingly been shaped by a discussion of what is fact that facts are now up for debate rather than something that is fixed and I'm wondering whether or not writing this book changed your view of politics and how politics has played itself out, particularly in the United States, but I think much more broadly over the last four years, the idea that we could all have our own set of facts.
1: Yeah, yeah I mean, I was pretty cynical to begin with on all of that. I'm not very optimistic person about politics most of the time and you know, the level at which certain things are pitched. But I think that we need, we need to kind of be realistic about the fact that what is intellectually satisfying or self-evident to certain people isn't to others. And we need to have a new way of kind of talking about these issues. And it would involve kind of a laying bare of certain vulnerabilities that I don't think anyone's in a rush to do. I don't think many people are going to you know, be quick to take up Um, But there's, you know, a different way of doing things. So Annie, who's the death doula in her story, and Katrina, who is one of, she doesn't use the word patient or client, but the woman that she was helping as she was dying, you know, their honesty about things that were so uncomfortable was radical to me. It was so uncomfortable for me to be around that at the beginning because They were being much more honest about things that we kind of glance over with in anger or blame or, you know, mockery. And it's something that doesn't just apply to to death. It applies to all these parts of our, our lives, which, you know, we're just used to kind of moving into simple stories to coast over what's not working. So there's definitely a different way of, of doing things. I don't know whether you're gonna get a critical mass of people coming with you on it, but I think like we can at least, as readers, we already did this. We already were used to stepping into the shoes of others and the lives of others. And so maybe, you know, there is a way out of the kind of grooves that we found ourselves in. I mean, America seems a very stark example of but we are filled with examples here. And mockery and anger is not working. And so at least thinking for a moment, what's another way forward that might
2: have value? I have to admit, thinking about belief, I have, been, I have become fascinated with QAnoners and people oh, who yeah. believe that whole conspiracy, even after the 6th of January and the inauguration of President Biden. And it's still such a hardcore belief. That is not what you write about. But I'm interested in what you said about not mocking even though you still and we all should have a huge respect for science-based fact and Mm evidence-based reality. But when I think back on history, sometimes the person who has the first idea is mocked and I'm thinking of the first scientist who decided that germs were real and there were these little invisible things that could kill a human. Now at that time, that was considered a loopy idea, but over time we have evidenced it and now the entire planet has spent twenty twenty washing their hands because it really does help. So when someone does have a radical new idea and are in the process of proving it, how do we distinguish that from someone who has just had an idea that they've basically made up and are selling as some kind of QAnon weird theory?
1: Like it's funny because listening to people like Annie and her friends who are like very strong radical Buddhists this notion of just accepting and sitting with you know discomfort you might feel if someone's reaction triggers something in you and you just so there's that at the one end you'd hope you'd take something from it but then at the other end you know we have this faculty of discernment it's not all opinions don't deserve a place at the table because we need room for everyone to be heard and there's certain views that you know take issue with that basic fact so i don't know how to get that balance right i mean i'm not against mockery in all instances, I think if someone's quite dangerous, that they do need to be called out immediately. So it is, you know, a question of of judgment. Again, I think that's where that issue of silos comes into it. We get so used to listening to our own feedback that, you know, we have this gut reaction against anyone else's opinion, or we're willing to like, let anything go within our own silos. So I don't know, I think part of the answer might lie in not giving into social media too much. I think that's quite dangerous. I think we need to kind of reanimate our faculty of concentration and, you know, quality control. Indeed. I don't know QAnon. That is, I think that's the only thing that can be said I this morning, which was somebody's, like, apologising to Anderson Cooper for thinking that he ate babies, and I just was like,
0: how did we get here? <laughs> yeah. And how do you accept that apology? Like, thanks, I'm glad, I'm glad you've come round. <laughs> but honestly... I think one of the things that has really stayed with me uh, since reading The Believer is a respect for your empathy, Sarah, and the possibility that empathy towards those who have vastly different ideas to ourselves is potentially the only thing that saves us, right? Or the only thing that moves us forward anyway. And you seem to move beyond the, at least on the page, you seem to move beyond that initial shock or desire to confront or disprove or persuade that I think a lot of journalists would have in in response to the the people you've interviewed in The Believer. So I wanted to ask, how did you maintain that empathy in the face of some really difficult to swallow beliefs and views? So I try with most
1: of the people that I was speaking to, to speak to them more than once. And some of them like Annie, the death doula, and Karen, who I met four months after she was released from prison where she'd been for 35 years, I had the privilege of getting to know them over the four years. So having kind of that repeated contact, you get to know someone very well. Other people in the book, I only spoke to a smaller amount of times, like less frequent. But I try to learn as much about them and their work as possible. So I have a luxury of a a long-term deadline. I'm trying as much as possible to see longitudinal change over time. And that allows that person to be more than just their opinion or their, you know, their shtick. You can see them in their small little habits and their kind of 3D humanity. And so even if what they're saying is very strange or doesn't make sense or whatever, it, it kind of, you're starting to see through this multi-layered filter of how what in them has caused them to believe these things or to say them in a certain way. And you realize that they're more than just that opinion. And so I think like context is everything. If you can kind of have a sense of how they got to be that way and see yourself in their shoes or not, that's not always possible. And there were stories that didn't make it into the book for that reason. But the ones I did were the ones I thought either there's value because I can kind of see how that happened or learn something from it. And there's bits of memoir throughout the book about me as well, because I kind of think it's a ethical contract or kind of like an energy, which is like if they're being quite vulnerable and sharing personal information, I'd like to be doing a similar thing as well. And I think that we can kind of get the most valuable insights if, if we're both doing the same thing often not in, in real time in the conversations, but, but pretty much, I'm pretty frank when I speak to people. It's kind of a natural conversation. It looks, I don't have like questions that I've prepared earlier that I stick to rigorously. It's more kind of circular and conversational. So yeah, I just kind of do my best to kind of see them as the person.
0: Well, I think you've done a really marvelous job of doing just that. And I think you, you also kind of took us into this space between the world of these pretty out there beliefs and the ordinary world that we all live in, you know, like even if you are a death doula or you believe in poltergeists or whatever it might be, you still have to get the kids to school or make your breakfast or brush your teeth before you go to bed. And I think your space and capacity for empathy on the page, as well as some really beautiful writing is extraordinary. Sarah, thank you so much for this book and thank you for being with us. Thank you guys for having me. Thank you so much. The believer is available at all good bookstores. It is by Sarah Krasnostein and is about encounters with love, death, and faith. If you want more anonymous was a woman, and I know you do. I am a mind reader in that way. I don't believe in ghosts, but I believe I can read your mind about this podcast and I know you want more of it. Make sure you subscribe to us and give us a rating wherever you get your podcast and please join us next week for more Anonymous Was A Woman. Bye for now.